Stanford University. Thanks to all of you for coming out this evening. I appreciate that you are evincing some interest in lymphatic disease and lymphedema, which is a topic that interests me quite a lot. As you can see from my title slide, I am by training a cardiologist. I continue to practice cardiology, but for the last 10 to 15 years, I've been very interested in the problems of the lymphatic circulation and the diseases that can ensue and I spend a lot of my time advocating on behalf of patients who have lymphatic disease. So I'm hoping to share some of that interest with you this evening and help you understand a little bit of the struggle that we have to find better answers for uh, these disease states. Well, I'm going to suspect that many of the people in the room either have lymphedema or know somebody that has lymphedema, which is the reason you might be here tonight, and if so, you probably know more about lymphedema than some of the healthcare professionals that you might have consulted with in the past, because this picture, I, in my mind, illustrates really what doctors have done to receive patients with lymphedema, certainly over the last 50 years and proceeding right into the present. If they are knowledgeable about the lymphatic system, they know that the disease states that exist are numerous and very important. Lymphedema perhaps is the most common of them, but there are certainly many. And the insightful clinicians will know that knowing something about the lymphatic system or learning more about the lymphatic system will actually bring answers to a broad array of diseases that historically nobody would have said uh, are specifically lymphatic, but we now understand that there are lymphatic implications certainly to cancer and its rate of spread and its roots of spread to a variety of autoimmune diseases and arthritis, chronic infections, inflammation. There's an impact on transplantation biology, which touches my life as a cardiologist as well. Certainly the mainstream cardiac diseases, coronary disease, heart failure, and a lot of metabolic disorders as well. Well, why is it that your doctors perhaps don't know very much about lymphedema? About four or five years ago, I was invited to give a symposium at the Association of American Medical Colleges, the group that pretty much oversees the curriculum of medicine in the United States. And we, in preparation for that symposium, we wanted to learn something about the extent to which the lymphatic system is studied today, or five years ago, let's say, in the American healthcare environment. And we actually surveyed the chiefs of the departments in the 110 schools in the US and Canada and got about a 75% response rate. And here you see the data that we were able to accumulate. As you'll notice, the vast preponderance of people who receive a medical degree in the United States or Canada here during a four-year medical education about the lymphatic system for under an hour. 
and many for less than 15 minutes. So it shouldn't surprise you then that your doctors may not be adequately prepared to deal with these diseases. Most physicians today think the lymphatics equal lymph nodes, and lymph nodes equal structures to be biopsied by surgeons to determine if there's been cancer spread, and that kind of ends it. But it turns out, uh, if I'm going to talk to you a little bit about lymphedema, I first have to tell you just a little bit about the lymphatic system, and we're going to spend more than 15 minutes, so you're going to be much better educated than your doctors by the time you walk out of here. The lymphatic system is part of the circulation, and it exists for a number of reasons, but in terms of fluid balance, it exists because about 1% of the blood that circulates through your body with every passage is left behind in the tissues and has to find some route back to the heart. And that route, in fact, is the lymphatic system. The lymphatic system also has very important immune functions, so you'll find that these small vessels, and we've depicted them schematically on this on this uh, uh, pictorial representation, are distributed most heavily in the areas of the body that come in contact with the outside world. So on the outside, of course, we have the skin, and the skin is replete with lymphatic vessels, but also in the gastrointestinal tract, in the lung, these are two other areas where the outside world comes in direct contact, and our bodies need to be able to defend us from outside invaders and use the lymphatic system. So in health, not only do the, do the lymphatics drain fluid, but they also help us to absorb fats from the intestine. They help us to maintain that fluid balance that we require, returning that 1% of fluid back to the central circulation and helping us in our, the ability of our immune system to fight off disease by bringing the disease-fighting cells to the part of the body that is to be defended. So I'd say we've made a little bit of progress in the last few years. I think a few more physicians know about lymphedema. Now they sort of remember it as something they don't know anything about, as opposed to not even recognizing the name. But uh, I think we're making a little bit of progress, and I'm going to spend the rest of this evening talking primarily about lymphedema, what we know about it, and what we hope to know in the future. Those people who have had some education in lymphedema um, have traditionally thought of lymphedema as either primary or secondary. So that means a condition that causes swelling in part or parts of the body based on inadequate lymphatic function that you're either predestined to have because of your genetics, that would be the primary form, or something that happens to you in life that damages your lymphatic system and makes it incompetent. It turns out that the division is not so exact, but for tonight's purposes, we'll, we'll leave it at that, but recognize that there is a broad area of interface where these conditions are not so clearly one or the other. As we get a little more sophisticated in our discussion, we can talk about the very many causes, both on the primary side and on the secondary side, that can cause this problem. So here's an example of primary lymphedema. This happens to be a condition called Milroy's disease, described by a physician in New York at the turn from the 19th to the 20th century, representing this condition that runs in families. Roughly half of the individuals in an affected family will have this. The child is born with the lymphedema and it persists throughout life. As you can see in this case, it can be asymmetric. So in this individual, only one of the two lower legs is affected. Here's an even less common 
uh, so-called primary form or inherited form. This has a very um, tongue-twisting Latin name called lymphedema dystichiasis, but what all that means is that the lymphedema exists in the same patient that happens to have uh, a double row of eyelashes, and in Latin that term is dystichiasis. So the same gene that causes the lymphedema also causes this mild uh, defect in the development of the eye. This kind of lymphedema, again, is determined by a gene that's present at birth, but the lymphedema does not actually appear until uh, typically puberty or even later. Now, if you look throughout the world, the most common cause of lymphedema that you'll come up with uh, is actually a tropical infectious disease. Um, this disease is called filariasis, and basically you acquire this disease because there is an obligate vector, in this case a mosquito, that is itself infected with a microscopic worm or nematode. And when this infected mosquito bites an uninfected individual or draws blood from the individual, it leaves behind the worm, which then multiplies in the host's body and eventually destroys the lymphatic system, leading to a very severe form of lymphedema that is sometimes called elephantiasis. We typically see this in third world countries, um, typically, most typically in Asia and Africa, but in, in uh, the Americas, we do see pockets of filariasis typically in Haiti and also in Brazil. Those are the two most commonly affected areas. It would be rare to impossible to imagine that an American uh, individual having not left the borders of this country could ever have filariasis. It could be acquired in international travel, but even that is, is, is very unlikely. Um, the common form of lymphedema that we see in this country, the most common form, is neither primary nor is it filariasis, but rather the kind that is left over as a consequence because somebody has been treated for cancer. Uh, and in this case, uh, the event is fairly clearly delineated and it can affect whatever part of the body is going to be affected by where a surgeon is required to alter lymph nodes, remove them, irradiate them, or do whatever has to be done. In this case, this is a patient that we follow here at Stanford who had malignant melanoma about a decade prior to this picture. Um, it was involving the right arm, and as a consequence, the surgeon had to remove lymph nodes from the armpit region, leaving this man with a mild degree of swelling, which he manages relatively readily. It can proceed very much to the opposite end of the spectrum where it becomes really a tremendously disfiguring problem that impedes function, that predisposes to infection recurrently, and that can significantly alter the life of the individual. So in this case, we're looking at a, uh, an, an example of breast cancer-associated lymphedema. Uh, in the cure for breast cancer, very often, there is the requirement to remove many lymph nodes from the armpit region, and in the affected individual, this kind of problem can ensue weeks, months, or years later. And here's a case of primary lymphedema, a very rare one. This condition, again, a patient that I follow uh, here at Stanford, uh, this condition is called Agenis syndrome, and it's typically seen in people of Norwegian extraction. Uh, it's 
rare to impossible to find it in this country, but we have one or two cases. And uh, this condition causes not only lymphedema, in this case of all four extremities and the face, but also uh, a rare uh, liver abnormality as well. So again, as we think about perhaps those of you in the room that are touched by this or people that you know, the common scenario is going to be that of cancer, cancer surveillance, cancer treatment, cancer cure. Not everybody who is treated for cancer and has lymph nodes removed develops lymphedema. So uh, at this point, we need to think a little bit about who's really at risk, who's at lower risk, who's at higher risk, how do you assess the risk? First of all, let's underscore that despite the fact that your doctors never talk about this, maybe haven't heard about it, know the name but don't know what to do about it, this is a common disease. We have prevalence estimates that suggest that there are 10 million people in the United States who have lymphedema. That means that one person out of 25 is affected. That's a common problem. And so we need to recognize that with common problems, we need lots of attention and we need to address common problems with common solutions. But there's a lot to this question about who gets this. So for example, there are uh, five million um, breast cancer survivors in the Bay Area. And of those, only about 20%, let's say, or 15% or 25%, depending on which estimates you believe, will actually be afflicted by lymphedema. What do we know about who gets it and who doesn't? Well, let me show you this graph, which I think is very um, illustrating of the problem. This is a study that was published about seven years ago in the cancer literature looking at the problem of lymphedema in patients who have axillary lymph node dissection. What you'll notice is that by the end of the period of observation, which goes out to five years, if you can read this graph, close to 15% of the operated population developed lymphedema. But I want you to notice two things. Number one is all of the patients got the same anatomic disfiguration at this time point. Only 15% developed the problem, 85% remain clear. But of the 15% who develop it, it doesn't happen overnight. Some develop it in a month, or two, or three, or 10, or 12. Some take three years, some take five years. And this notion that the problem is anatomically present but does not manifest for months or years or even decades later is part of the problem that physicians face in trying to determine who is at risk. Because when you're seeing a patient who's had the risk imbuing surgery or radiation therapy and they have a normal limb, are they harboring the likelihood or inevitability that they'll develop the disease or are they in indeed free of risk and able to live life normally. We know a lot about what is not associated with risk. So of those 15 or 20 percent of patients who have breast cancer treatment, for example, with lymph node dissection and radiation therapy, we don't always know what puts them at risk, but these are the things we know are not associated. It doesn't matter how old the patient is. It doesn't matter what kind of chemotherapy or other drug regimen we use. It doesn't matter how long it's been since the surgery took place. It doesn't matter what is done surgically to the breast itself. 
It doesn't matter if you irradiate the breast itself. The total dose of irradiation is not the critical feature. The menopausal status of the patient is not. And if the patient develops arm swelling early on after surgery and it goes away, also that is not a predictor of ultimate risk. So many things we know, but the question of what it is, we still don't know. That's part of my research, and I hope if I get the chance to come and talk to you in two or three years again, maybe I can clarify that a little bit more for you. What we do know about this kind of lymphedema is that it's chronic, it has a major impact on the well-being and quality of life of the individuals affected. It is frequently misdiagnosed. It's often treated too late or not treated at all. And why is that important? Because there is a good body of literature to suggest that the earlier you recognize and treat lymphedema, the more you can prevent its progression and the more you can prevent the end consequences of having chronic lymphedema, some of which we'll talk about. Uh, this evening. It becomes even more important when we think about breast cancer as one perhaps the most common cause of lymphedema in the United States. What we know about lymphedema, I'm uh, sorry, what we know about breast cancer is that it's definitely on the rise in the United States and estimates project that we will have new diagnoses that jump from 185,000 per year at the current level to 420,000 per year within the next 20 years. However, despite the fact that we've made major advances in the invasiveness of the surgery, the invasiveness of the radiation therapy, we have many more therapeutic options, none of that has significantly impacted the new incidence of lymphedema in the treated population, which means by definition we're going to see a burgeoning number of cases unless we find some answers. Well, let me tell you one thing that's on the horizon, uh, at least to help us stratify risk a little bit. This is one of the areas that I'm very interested in in research and uh, currently using in our program at Stanford. Um, it's a technique called multi-frequency bioimpedance analysis. And basically what this means is, if you're looking at a patient, let's say if I'm looking at a patient who's been treated for breast cancer, we're worried that lymphedema may be present in a very early stage or about to appear. By historical means, we have no way of making that prediction. But using this technique, if we rely on the fact, as we understand, that electricity travels through water, and lymphedema, in fact, is an accumulation of water in the limb, if we look at the limb at risk and compare it to the limb that's normal, and look at the rate of transmission of a tiny bit of current through the limb, something the patient can't feel. The limb that is beginning to accumulate fluid even before the doctor can feel it is going to transmit the electricity a little bit faster because you all know you're not supposed to talk on the telephone in the bathtub. It's a good conductor of electricity. And that means that by measuring tiny changes in what's called bioimpedance, we can actually detect lymphedema before it develops, which is a tremendous tool for risk stratification. It uses a device that looks just like this. The electrodes are attached to the skin just like when you get an electrocardiogram, and the device itself you see in the upper left-hand corner gives us an almost immediate readout, very precise, and can be tracked over time. And is useful not only to predict the development of lymphedema, but probably will be useful to predict the utility of treatment strategies as well. 
Well, once we exceed the point at which we rely on bioimpedance, meaning the edema is already present, the clinician in the examination room relies upon a very simple strategy by physical examination to determine if there's extra fluid in the limb, which is, in essence, can he or she leave a thumbprint by putting a little gentle pressure on the limb? If there's extra fluid there, you can move it around, and that is uh, what we call pitting. That's the, the medical term for it, and you can see the deep pit that the examiner's finger, in this case mine, uh, has left in, in the individual's limb. That should be enough, coupled with the patient's clinical status and a few other features of the examination, to make the diagnosis of lymphedema. But as we've said, the preparedness of the clinicians to assign this diagnosis is still uh, less than exemplary. So sometimes we need some additional objective uh, documentation in the way of testing. So what we've relied on historically and the way we validate the diagnosis of lymphedema is to do a nuclear scan that's called a lymphocentogram. Lymphocentogram simply means that you're using radioactivity to look at the lymph system. This is a lymphocentogram in an individual who has lymphedema in this arm. Let me tell you what we've done. We've taken the radioactivity, which is bound to a large molecule, and injected it into the space between the fingers and you see the large depot of radioactivity in each hand. On the normal side, the lymph ascends quickly to the lymph nodes, which look like black blobs. This is the uh, armpit region, this is the elbow region, and you can see that that material that was injected into the hand and can only get upstream by lymph flow has arrived. On the abnormal side, not only has it not arrived at the same time point, but we also notice that there has been a lot of leakage of lymph. That is, it's taken up in the hand, it's trying to get up to the armpit, but it leaks out into the tissues of the arm because the lymph is under high pressure, because it's abnormal. So that is a diagnostic lymphocentogram for lymphedema. Here's another very abnormal lymphocentogram, this one in the legs. And here you see that tremendous evidence of back leakage of lymph. This patient actually has that eyelash problem that I showed you a few moments ago, and it is an attribute of that particular kind of lymphedema to have a lot of back leakage because the valve structures in the lymph system don't work properly. Well, it's very exciting time because we're actually making some progress in imaging of the lymph system as well, although we can't do it yet in the United States clinically. In Europe and in Asia, they're beginning to use CAT scan and magnetic resonance imaging to look at the lymph system by directly injecting contrast material into these small lymphatic vessels that up until now we really haven't been able to see directly by any x-ray technique. Here's another example of that and we can actually see the major lymph channel in the body called the thoracic duct seen very clearly by having injected some appropriate dye just into a vein in the arm like you would have any other kind of CAT scan or other uh, imaging study. So that's what I can tell you today about diagnosis. Once we diagnose it, what do we do? What's, what is the treatment of lymphedema? First of all, why do we treat it? Because some people ask that question. It's, many doctors think it's not an important problem. It's something to be dismissed. I don't think that's true. I think there are many reasons to treat lymphedema. It poses a risk of infection. 
It reduces the function of the limb or limbs that are involved. It restricts movement. It really impacts the person's perception of their ability to perform both psychologically and physically in the manner in which they did prior to the development of the problem. And this has been demonstrated readily in any number of ways in formal testing. So what do we do? Well, unfortunately, we cannot restore damaged lymphatic vessels. Not today, anyway. Maybe someday we will. So what we have to do is to augment their function through physical means. I will tell you that the treatment is laborious. It's time-consuming. It's on the expensive side in that it requires many hours of a health professional's time. But it is successful in substantially reducing the dysfunction of the limb as the limb comes closer and closer to a normal size. Treatment occurs in two phases. The first phase has to be done by a well-trained physical therapist. Part of the problem that we face in the United States is that we have a paucity of such well-trained people and they're not well geographically distributed. Fortunately here uh, on the peninsula and in the greater San Francisco Bay Area, we do have um, a, a suitable number of clinicians who can actually uh, do this. The initial work of the physical therapist involves the repeated application of just this kind of multi-layer bandaging. Now before you get the wrong idea, this is not like a health um, uh, trainer taking an ACE bandage and wrapping it as tight as he can around the limb to squeeze out all the fluid. That's not how it works. This bandage is actually relatively loose fitting, but it has many layers to it, and its job is to augment the flow of lymph, and in fact, when you put on such a bandage and you have a means to measure this, you can show that the lymph vessels, which know how to contract spontaneously and thereby move the fluid out of the limb, these lymph vessels increase both the size of the contraction and the number of contractions per minute that occur when the bandage is in place and the individual is using the muscles under the bandage. That's how it works. So that if we apply this bandage for 12 to 24 hours per session, and perhaps do this 10 or 15 sessions sequentially, we will see a gradual reduction in the size of the limb to the point that we achieve maximal benefit. It is at that point that we can put the care back in the hands of the patient, who then can uh, be given a compression garment that is should be properly fitted and will be worn each day to maintain the benefit that is achieved by those sessions done by the physical therapist. It's important to understand the garment does not make the limb smaller. The garment keeps the limb from getting larger. So we first have to get it smaller through the work of the physical therapist and then maintain that benefit by using the garment. So there is this interlocking uh, approach that includes both healthcare professionals and eventually a self-care regimen, which also includes care of the skin, exercise, and other features that we won't uh, dwell on tonight. Now, it's not a panacea. It will not make the problem go away. And uh, rest assured, I would tell you if it were otherwise, there is no cure for lymphedema. This is a treatment, much like insulin is a treatment for diabetes. And it is not universally effective, but it is largely effective. Here's what I would call an average result. This is an individual with rather severe lymphedema of both legs prior to treatment. And here you see what happens after 
10 or 15 sessions of physical therapy and the regular use of a compression garment. These legs are not normal, but you can see they've come down substantially in size. This gentleman can now wear routine slacks. He can put on a pair of shoes and he can go about his life uh, with the garments in place. Now, I do want to point out that lymphedema as a chronic condition is more than fluid. The fluid is problem enough, but actually it has a very complex biology and many things happen when the lymph system is interrupted over a period of time. So one thing that we know happens, and I'm showing you here a CAT scan of a limb. This is the large bone running through the limb. This is the outer perimeter of it, of course. And what you see here that looks like a very thick grapefruit rind is actually the person's skin which has thickened to perhaps five to tenfold its normal thickness under the influence of chronic lymph malfunction. This doesn't happen in any other edema state. This is quite unique to lymphedema. We don't understand the mechanisms well yet. We begin to have some clues, but uh, it's one of the problems that we face. One of the other problems that we face, and this is, um, somewhat of a morbid picture, but I think it's important to show you. Um, this is a patient who had breast cancer much earlier in life, 25 years earlier, did not die of that disease, died of something else. But at post-mortem examination, they did a cross-section of both arms. And this is the side where the lymphedema, where the breast cancer was treated. And you'll notice that there has been a roughly tripling of the amount of fat that is present between the muscle and the skin on the side that the lymphedema affected. She was not a svelte woman. She has a fair amount of fat on the other side as well. But I want you to see the disparity. So this woman, by the time she died, did not have a big swollen arm because of fluid. She had a big swollen arm because of fat. And that, again, is an inevitable and well-recognized complication of chronic lymph malfunction. Well, it turns out that we have some treatment options to offer in this regard. This is a surgical technique. It's a, it is an adaptation of something that plastic surgeons do called liposuction, but specifically adapted so that the excess fatty material can be withdrawn from a lymphedema limb and restore it to normal size. So this is a patient that was operated on. This is her lymphedema arm prior to surgery. This is 15 years later. She has gone to a normal size limb that she acquired initially because of treating, treatment for breast cancer. And this is the fat that was removed from her limb at the time of surgery. Um, this surgery, again, was pioneered in Sweden by a friend and colleague named Håkan Brorsen. And um, through years of collaboration, we have imported, if you will, this surgery to Stanford and now do it here, I do it with a colleague in the plastic surgery department at Stanford, and this is an option for some of the patients that we see. Here's another patient who had an operation for this reason. This is a young man who had Hodgkin's disease, developed the lymphedema in his limb after the treatment of Hodgkin's disease, was very bereft over the fact that he couldn't wear a pair of jeans that he could buy in the Levi's store, um, and couldn't live a normal life. But here he is uh, one year after the surgery, and you can see that his leg has been restored to normal. As I said, though, there is no cure for lymphedema. Uh, we can treat it, and this surgery is one of the things we're excited about 
today, moving into tomorrow. But I do want to talk to you a little bit about the research that we're doing in my laboratory and in my program, because it is my belief that we should be able to get to the point that we treat lymphedema like we treat many other diseases, which is to say, with molecules, with drugs, by altering the biology of the individual to make the problem disappear, perhaps cured, or simply brought under control. And in order to do this, of course, we rely on our friend the mouse, who has the ability to show us how the molecular machinery of the body works. And because the mouse's body works in many ways, just like the human body, we can learn a lot by looking at the mouse as an experimental model. So I've helped to develop a model that we've been using now for about six or seven years, in which we create lymphedema in the mouse tail as a way to simulate what we see in the lymphedema patient, which is that after surgical disruption of the lymphatics, there is the swelling beyond the point at which the lymph system has been destroyed. And that's exactly what we do in the tail. Here's where we make the incision. And you can see the swollen tail compared to a more normal one that has had simply a surgical incision into the skin of the tail without disrupting the lymphatics. And when we look in the tail, it's very nice. In the mouse, we have this very beautiful honeycomb pattern of lymph vessels that we can study. We can study them under the microscope. We can study them dynamically, and we can study the molecular pattern. Well, I'm very happy to be able to say, and the details are not that important. I know you're not all anatomists, but um, as you do the, make the transition from normal human skin to lymphedema skin, there is a very predictable change that we see, the thickening of the outer layers of the skin, changes within the interior. And in the mouse, the changes look absolutely identical to what we see in the mouse, in the human. Therefore, we have great confidence that anything we study in the mouse is going to have some predictive value for the human disease. One area that we've been interested in is the notion that because we can understand how these vessels develop in the human body as the individual is born and, and goes through embryonic life, we might be able to capture the power of those same molecules and induce new lymph vessel growth in an adult person who has uh, the disease. And this is able to be done because we've now identified a whole host of growth factors in the human body and in the mouse body that indeed induces lymphatic growth. So we've done that in our model, and uh, not to belabor the details, but I'm showing you here one of our mice that was given lymphedema surgically, and you'll see that beyond the black mark where the surgery was initially done, the sit tail is swollen, so this is a lymphedema tail. Here is a mouse that had the same surgery, but was treated with the growth factor, and you can see that the tail actually return to a normal size. So with growth factor therapy, we can actually cure lymphedema, if you will, at least in the mouse. Um, we're very excited about this, and I do believe that we'll be moving into some clinical applications on this in the next two to three years. We've been busy trying to figure out what is the best growth factor to use. Uh, but it's not a panacea because many of the patients, as we said, are cancer survivors. And we're not entirely sure that it's going to be safe to give growth factors to cancer survivors because it might stimulate the growth of the original uh, cancer in some way that is not desirable. But just to show you how things work out in this model, here we've given a particular growth factor called VEGFC. 
Um, in the untreated mouse, the tail volume goes up very dramatically within about 10 days after surgery. Here are the normals down below. And if we give the growth factor on day three, we blunt the process from progressing any further and eventually the tail comes down to a normal size. Um, so having said that we may not be universally confident that the growth factor is going to be the right way to do this, we've actually been looking at alternative strategies, actually using drugs that will alter the biology of the lymphedema itself, but not be dangerous necessarily to a cancer victim. And here again, we've had some very nice success in the model where using clues that we've gotten from the studies in the mouse, we've been able to intuit which drugs might actually reverse the disease process. And these pictures are taken just days after the surgery, but you can already see that the treated mouse who's getting the drug systemically is beginning to resolve the lymphedema even at this early time point. And even more dramatically, when we look under the microscope, here's the normal mouse. And again, that thin skin layer on the outside, normal looking structures underneath. Here's an animal that gets surgery. We call it a sham because we don't actually interrupt the lymphatic vessels themselves. Looks indistinguishable from the normal. And here's lymphedema. There's that tenfold increase in the thickness of the skin. Lots of inflammation. These are big lymphatic channels that have dilated because of the obstruction upstream. When we give the drug that we use to reduce the inflammation, within seven days the inflammation is gone, but even more dramatically, the skin has returned to virtually its normal thickness, which gives us promise that we can actually reverse this disease state. Our working hypothesis is that when we use a drug to block inflammation, we actually break the vicious cycle that drives the lymphedema patient to develop more and more lymphedema because we are able to stimulate the restorative properties of the skin while blocking the negative consequences of inflammation. We've relied a lot in our work in a technique called microarray, which basically is a technique developed here at Stanford by Dr. Patrick Brown in which we can simultaneously assay 50,000 genes all at the same time. This is a microchip, and you can see an enlarged uh, portion of it here in the center. Every one of these dots is DNA from a specific gene. And by taking tissue specimens and deriving the appropriate molecules from them and overlaying them on the chip, we can tell gene by gene which genes go up in their activity, which go down, which stay the same. And that allows us to understand how the whole tissue is responding and using the genetic environment to orchestrate what is happening at the tissue level. We've done this in our model, and what we're very gratified to find is here's, here's the output of one such microarray. Uh, basically, out of the 50,000 genes that we assayed, only 240 actually change in a meaningful way when we treat with this anti-inflammatory therapy, meaning that we've already very closely targeted the pathways that we're interested in, and it gives us a lot of promise uh, for the future. So I always 
end my talks on lymphedema with this picture because I think it shows perfectly well, continues to show perfectly well where we are. We've accomplished a lot. We have a lot still left to accomplish. I want to end my formal comments with a few concrete suggestions about information about our program and also about resources uh, nationally related to lymphedema. We currently have four major clinical research trials going on in the Stanford Center for Lymphatic and Venous Disorders. I talked to you about bioimpedance analysis, that EKG-like machine that measures subtle amounts of fluid in the limb. We are using that technique to follow people that are at risk for lymphedema that haven't developed it to determine how we can use preventive strategies to actually prevent the development of overt lymphedema. We are developing blood tests here at Stanford that will give us the tools one day to be able to make the diagnosis by a blood test, just like you get most of your diagnoses from a doctor, rather than waiting for the limb to blow up in size and say, oh, okay, you have it, nothing more to be done. Uh, but we need to do the molecular analysis with the help of patient volunteers who participate in these studies so that we can actually make that development that will one day be a tool not only to help the people that haven't developed it yet, but also the people that have it so that we can monitor their therapy and find new therapies that will be effective. We are translating some of the mouse work into patients and actually using some of the drug treatments that we've used successfully in the mice in patients, and we're actively looking for volunteers who want to participate in that. And the final work that I haven't discussed tonight is that we've, I've done some work looking at the interplay between the person's metabolic status and their risk of developing lymphedema. And we have some early insights that are very useful, and I think we're going to be taking that work forward as well. I want to mention the Lymphatic Research Foundation, which any of you that have lymphedema or are interested in it should know about this organization. I'm very privileged to serve as the chair of the Scientific Advisory Board of the Lymphatic Research Foundation. I think they are the entity in the world that is doing the most to move research forward and find new answers for really troubling questions. I want you to know that I'm very proud of the fact that four years ago I was able to institute a Gordon conference on the lymphatic system. This is the most preeminent research conference series in the world. There are about 250 of them that recur either annually or biennially, and we have now uh, had three successful such conferences. The fourth will occur in 2010 in Italy. And I think this offers real promise for patients that scientists are getting together and actively deliberating about cutting-edge research as it might affect the lymphatic system. I want to emphasize the fact that through the Lymphatic Research Foundation, we have a peer-reviewed uh, indexed journal called Lymphatic Research and Biology that provides an avenue for scientists to communicate with one another in writing about their research. I'm very privileged to serve as the editor-in-chief of this journal, which is now going into its eighth year of publication history. So with that, I want to thank you very much for your attention, and it's time for questions or comments. Debulking sometimes will keep company with the liposuction. Sometimes it is the primary surgery that's indicated. And the debulking, when we do it in a limb, it's because of that cellular overgrowth that 
that thickens the skin sometimes will thicken all layers of the limb to the point that there's nothing that can be done mechanically with the limb because it's so chock full of cells and, and mass. Um, debulking surgery in general will only be safe and workable when adequate compression can be applied to the post-surgical region of the body afterwards. That's what would make debulking of the abdomen very dangerous because it's very hard to, uh, to apply adequate compression. I am very much an advocate of debulking in the right circumstances and we send patients for this, but it's going to be really a minority of patients. And I would be very careful in the trunk portion of the body. The simple answer is yes, probably yes. Let me first talk about the statistics about the lymph node sampling. We really divide the world into two broad categories when it comes to breast cancer. We talk about the sentinel node technique, which allows us to sample up to four lymph nodes from the axilla. Four or less equals a sentinel node technique. Anything more than four represents an axillary clearance of some degree. People that have sentinel node technique alone have about a 6% aggregate risk of developing lymphedema. People that have the full axillary technique have about a 25% risk. So just having a sentinel node technique already reduces your risk by 75%. But I would have to say that somebody who had a sentinel node technique and carries a diagnosis of primary lymphedema probably that would be a more substantial number. Probably not as high as 25%, but somewhere in between. So you pretty much add together the risks or, or subtract them as the case may be. No, if lymphedema is present biologically, however it gets there, and it has in the case that we've been studying, a significant inflammatory component, which we see pretty universally, what we are doing is treating the inflammatory component to break the cycle that that creates in terms of perpetuating the lymphedema. We basically cut that off so that the lymph system can use its own healing strategies to try to restore its own function. And it doesn't really matter whether the damage is surgical, radiation, the types of nodes or the location of the nodes, all of that would be less important than the fact that the lymphedema be established for that particular aspect of what I talked about this evening. The drug would be able to allow the body's systemic features overcome the regional problem. There is clear body of evidence to show us that when that kind of massage is done by a properly trained individual who knows the directionality and the degree of pressure and all of the details mechanically about how to do it, there's no question but that lymph flow increases. And you can look at a limb that's swollen and watch it decompress under the impact of the, of the technique. The difficulty resides in how well the therapist's expertise 
is transmitted and translates into the patient's ability to do self-management. In many cases, it may not be optimally helpful because it's not done completely correctly, but if the, the, te if the touch is incorrect, it could actually be an exacerbating feature. What I mean by that is that the technique is based on the following principle. If you put just enough pressure on the skin to open the lymphatic capillaries so that they're maximally prepared to receive fluid, but not so much that you stimulate an increase in blood flow to the skin, which will increase the amount of lymph formed, then the net flow of lymph will be in the right direction. If you're using too much pressure and you actually increase capillary skin blood flow, you will actually have potentially either a neutral effect or a deleterious effect. So everything hinges on how well trained the individual is to do it properly. Um, but if you're doing it and you see that if anything it's keeping things stable and it's not making anything worse, it's pro and you have the time and the inclination to do it, it's a, probably a good thing to do. We don't lean on people to do it because we'd rather not have it done improperly than, you know, than, than, than insist on it being done. The garment is the mainstay of successful lymphedema therapy. If you've had an edematous limb and gone through a course of therapy that ended up in the application of a garment, that garment is probably necessary. The thing to be worked out over time is how necessary is it? Do you really need it 18 waking hours a day? Do you only need it during certain activities? Do you only need it at certain times of year? Um, all of these can be worked out a little bit by trial and error. I will, I will preempt a question that may come up and say that um, one of the situations in which we think there's an increased likelihood that lymphedema will appear is um, doing anything at high, just existing at high altitude, let's say above 5,000 feet, when typically you're not at that altitude. Or if you fly in a commercial airplane, which is typically pressurized to 7,000 feet, so it's very high altitude. Um, and probably if you're prone to lymphedema or have had lymphedema, and you physically exert with the lymphedematous limb, thereby increasing blood flow. Those are all circumstances that I can say a priori are probably good ones in which to use the garment, if nothing else. The rest has to be worked out a bit by trial and error. The conservative and proper answer is, if you've been given a garment, you're supposed to wear it. But I know that's draconian and not always 100%. It has been demonstrated that there are progenitor lymphatic endothelial cells, the lining cells of the lymphatics, that become recruited into developing uh, lymphatic vessels during embryonic life. They seem to be the minority of the cell population, but it does tell us that there is the biological potential for a stem cell clone or, or group of cells to participate in repair processes. Very little has been done yet to look at the stem cell potential for acquired lymphangiogenesis or growth of new blood vessels, but there is some interest. There are some laboratories. I'm actually collaborating with a laboratory uh, at Emory 
that is looking at this. So uh, we're not really prepared to say too much yet, but in the next two to four years, I think we'll, we'll know a fair amount more than we do right now. First of all, there are, are a multiplicity of machines out on the market, and I think they have a varying capacity to do good or harm. And I'm going to discriminate at the moment between pumps that are designed to work at relatively high pressure, many of them, and to work very much like a cow milking machine. You might get the flavor that I'm not so keen on them. Uh, <laughs> versus um, machines that are actually designed to, develop, to, to deliver massage. And there are now at least a couple that fall in the latter category. I'm more familiar with one in particular that is a product of a company called uh, Tactile Systems. It's called FlexiTouch, and it was bioengineered to really try to simulate as close as possible, as closely as possible, what the massage is actually intended to do when, when performed by a well-trained physical therapist. So it emphasizes the opening of the central lymphatics in the trunk, and it emphasizes the sequential low-pressure stretch on the skin in, a, in, in an organized pattern to stimulate lymph flow. We've uh, done and published studies on the adjunctive use of that device uh, in the maintenance care of lymphedema, both in the arm and the leg, and found it to be favorable. We found that patients who added it to their mainstay of therapeutics, typically the garment, after having gone through adequate physical therapy, actually got a more robust treatment response than if they just used the garment or garment plus self-administered massage. Um, this device and all other devices can never be used as a standalone approach and never should be used for a patient who is treatment naive. You don't go directly from a diagnosis of lymphedema to purchasing a device because the likelihood is things will get worse rather than better. But at the tail end of the therapeutic intervention, uh, if the response is suboptimal or the patient simply is looking for something additional, I think these machines have benefit. The biggest drawback to them is they're quite costly. The third-party payers these days are reimbursing, if they do reimburse, somewhere between 80 and 100 percent, but the, ticker, the ticket uh, sticker price, I guess you would call it, is fairly high. So what the part that the patient has to bear is therefore reasonably high, even if it's only 10 percent. Um, but it is something that can be considered. If it's pure cellulitis in a, uh, in a breast region that has been treated for lymphedema with radiation and or some trauma to the draining lymph nodes, it might be an early sign that the lymphatic system of the breast itself is compromised and breast lymphedema, independent of lymphedema of the limb, can also occur and can be a very troublesome problem for some patients. We also see in the breast of treated breast cancer patients a kind of corollary problem which we'll call, I'm going to call mastitis, which is not specifically infection of the skin but actually inflammation of the whole breast which can occur after radiation in particular. And that, I think, has no particular relationship to the whole lymphatic question. So the first distinction is, is it mastitis or is it cellulitis? If it's cellulitis, I would have a lot of surveillance for the possibility that the breast could be prone uh, later to, to edema itself.
And the answer to that is no, because it's not really a cancer model. We do envision one day, if we get far enough along in this, that that's something we would need to look at. But what we know in general is that those people who successfully beat cancer, and all of us really, have scattered malignant cells in our body. Generally, they don't do any harm because our intrinsic immune system holds them at bay and we really win the battle. There are new malignant cells formed in our bodies every day. And certainly in a breast cancer or any cancer survivor, there is the likelihood that there may be stray cells that are left behind. If we gave growth factor to that individual, we would tip the balance away from the intrinsic immune system. And that in itself probably is enough of a reason not to go down that road. Now what we do know about the growth factor trials that have been done clinically, as a cardiologist, let's say I've done growth factor trials for coronary disease, trying to grow new blood vessels around the heart. Typically, we say that five years out from cancer diagnosis, you're considered cancer-free and are eligible to participate in such a trial. So we think that would likely be the window in which it's reasonably safe. But my own bias is to stay away from it entirely. If we can develop other strategies that are much safer and that are equally efficacious, that's what I would prefer. It turns out that inflammation is an extraordinarily complex condition with so, so many pathways activated and suppressed and so on. What we found, and I didn't go into all of the molecular um, uh, vagaries of, our, of the model and what we've learned, one of the reasons our treatment seems to be particularly effective, and we actually looked at two different anti-inflammatory uh, interventions, one of which raises the quantities of, a, um, of an inflammatory molecule called TNF-alpha, very ubiquitous in inflammation. The other one lowers it. So one drug reduces inflammation but raises that what we call pro-inflammatory cytokine. The other one lowers it. What turns out when you raise TNF-alpha, the lymphedema heals. When you lower TNF-alpha, even though you're invoking an anti-inflammatory response, the lymphedema gets worse. And there are lots of complex reasons why that's true, which is why I'm saying don't try it at home. We're trying it out for you. We'll figure out what the best one is and then we'll, we'll tell you, okay? Okay, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. For more, please visit us at stanford.edu.